You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 27th of February 2023 on Monocle 24. The Briefing is brought to you in association with Allianz Partners. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Tom Edwards. Coming up today, French President Emmanuel Macron will head to Beijing. But is there any chance that China could help to bring about an end to hostilities in Ukraine? In Italy, there's a surprise pick to lead the left. But can Elie Schlein unify the Democratic Party? We'll also be hearing from our man in Washington, D.C. The crowd at a rally for Ukraine at the Lincoln Memorial this weekend was smaller than you might expect. Or at least it was smaller than I would have expected for the one-year anniversary of Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine. More from Chris Chermak later. And Fernando Augusto Pacheco has been browsing some of the newspapers across LATAM. Faye, what have you seen? Hello, Tony. Today's a little bit of an unpredictable paper review, from protests in Mexico to mysterious elves and even a bear under the effect of cocaine. All that and more ahead, here on The Briefing with me, Tom Edwards. Well, we start today's programme in Paris, where, over the weekend, French President Emmanuel Macron announced he will be paying a visit to China to seek Beijing's help in ending Russia's war in Ukraine. Well, William Yang is the East Asia correspondent for Deutsche Welle, and he joins us now from Taipei. Good evening to you, William. Uh, good afternoon from here in London. Um, welcome to the show. Tell me a little bit about this announcement. It follows China's sort of 12-point peace plan calling for a ceasefire. Maybe before we talk about Macron's plans, remind us about what the Chinese plan looks like. So the Chinese plan is basically calling on both sides to immediately try to stop the war and enter into any kind of uh, peace talks. And uh, I think one of the most important points that really stand out is China's call again for no use of nuclear weapons and at the same time no uh, initiation of any kind of like nu- nuclear warfare. Uh, but at the same time, there's not really enough uh, substance that we see that could actually offer any uh, clue and signal that uh, Beijing can can either convince uh, Russia to stop its uh, aggression in Ukraine, but at the same time also convince uh, Ukraine to feel safe enough to come to the negotiation table before Russia stops any kind of uh, attacks on uh, civilian targets, especially across uh, the eastern part of Ukraine. Yeah, well, I'll ask you a bit more about China's potential role in terms of any meaningful mediation a bit later. But just in terms of Macron, an interesting announcement, nevertheless, this weekend that he's heading for Beijing. He'll obviously have lots on his agenda. What do you think he might try to do? Is it a question of Macron attempting to maybe shift Beijing's position uh, in terms of the conflict in Ukraine? What What do you think his objectives will be? I think his objective is definitely trying to express European countries' concern of the ongoing war, and then under and then I think also at the same time, uh, telling Beijing how important they think, uh, you know, China's influence on Russia could be in terms of helping to bring an end to this ongoing conflict that has been uh, happening for more than a year right now. Uh, and at the same time, I think this is a very clear signal coming from. Uh, the European Union and European countries itself uh, compared to the US, which is a general skeptical tone that we see from coming out of Washington. I think uh, European countries still kind of uh, see the role of China be 
being a little bit more, uh, I think, uh, constructive rather than uh, just pure skepticism of what actually has been, uh, you know, like uh, in terms of like Beijing's intentions. So they do see the merits of uh, influencing and telling, uh, sharing their concerns with Beijing so that maybe China is going to use its influence on Russia to try to bring uh, the both sides closer to the negotiation table. Well, I think that's interesting. And I was going to ask you a bit about how what the Chinese view of Macron specifically might be. Is he viewed as a bit of a almost a proxy for, well, you've already explained it, not just for the European Union, but for the whole kind of European geographic bloc? Do you think that Beijing kind of sees Macron as a something of a delegate for all of those countries? Because we've, you know, post sort of Angela Merkel, we've not maybe had that singular figure, that unifier. Do you think Beijing maybe sees that Macron could be that? I definitely think that Beijing sees both uh, the uh, German Chancellor uh, Olaf Scholz and also um, Macron as the uh, representative that they can engage with in terms of Europe and uh, EU and China relations, because these are, uh, uh, at the end of the day, the two biggest uh, economies in the European Union. And they also have the biggest sway and influence and decision-making power inside the European Union. So uh, I think Beijing sees this meeting with Macron also being very important, not only just to touch base on the most pressing issue of the Ukraine war, but at the same time, the overall state of the EU-China relations, which in itself has really hit uh, a very uh, difficult patch uh, since 2020 after the bilateral uh, investment deal was stalled inside the European Parliament. Uh, William, let's return to this idea then of, of China as, as mediator in this in this space. Uh, you know, Beijing has continued to underscore its nominal neutrality in terms of the conflict. And we've seen, it's interesting, you know, Zelensky's welcomes Chinese efforts to sort of move the needle on this. C- could China play any kind of mediatory role, do you think? Or, or realistically, is this going to be, I don't know, more empty rhetoric? What's your view? I think at the moment, it looks a little bit more like the empty rhetoric that uh, Beijing thinks that as long as they put something on the paper, they can kind of still convince the world that uh, they are not already in the camp of Russia. But if we really look at the recent uh, actions and also statements that are made by top Chinese officials that have engaged or interacted with top Russian officials, it's really hard to convince to, to feel convinced that China can genuinely uh, position itself as a neutral mediator because just simply, you know, we look at the statement that they put out, they continue to use the word Ukraine crisis to describe the whole situation rather than using the word war. And then they have still not really condemned either side. They always try to use this very uh, neutral approach and also call on both sides. But at the same time, they did not recognize the kind of, uh, I think, damages that clearly the Russian uh, actions and behaviors have uh, caused on Ukraine over the last year. And also uh, the I think millions of uh, Ukrainian uh, refugees that have been displaced uh, across Europe and also around the world or internally. So I think right now uh, what we have to really see is whether Beijing will stop short of its uh, no limits uh, partnership with Russia so that 
its position of being a potential broker will be taken more seriously. And then the West might actually be willing to engage with China more further on this topic of the ongoing war. Otherwise, uh, they might still see China as uh, trying to play this role on on the surface. But at the same time, there are maybe a lot of like underground or under the surface kind of like negotiation or interaction between China and Russia that uh, will be seen in a very skeptical light. And, you know, we continue to see how the U.S. is uh, sending warnings to Beijing for not uh, sending any lethal weapons or lethal uh, military support to Russia and uh, like China continue to come out to uh, refute those kind of accusations or uh, call it, you know, just, uh, you know, speculation. So right now, I think the U.S.-China dynamic is really at a very uh, critical moment and also at the low point for their bilateral communication. And so if that uh, bilateral relationship and communication cannot be repaired, uh, it's really going to be difficult for uh, China to play a constructive and real role as a broker. Yeah, fascinating stuff. William, thanks for your time as always. That was William Yang joining us on the programme. Right now, let's cross over and hear from Monocle's Carlotta Rabello. She's standing by with the day's other news headlines. Thanks, Tom. Huge rallies have been held in several Mexican cities against what protesters say are government attempts to undermine the electoral authorities. It comes as lawmakers voted to slash the budget of the National Electoral Institute, with the opposition pressing the Supreme Court to overturn the decision. More results are expected shortly from Nigeria's tightest election since the end of military rule in 1999. So far, only one of the 36 state results has officially been declared. More than 87 million people were eligible to take part, making it the biggest democratic exercise in Africa. And Qantas has announced healthier profits for more than 1.4 billion Australian dollars in a dramatic turnaround of the airline's fortune since last year. It comes after the company lost more than 7 billion Australian dollars during the pandemic, when Australia imposed strict travel rules. The airline said strong demand for flights, higher airfares and cost-cutting were behind its rebound. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Tom. Thank you very much indeed, Carlotta. Now we're off to Italy, where the opposition centre-left Democratic Party has elected a new leader. Elie Schlein, a 37-year-old US-Italian national who grew up in Switzerland, has been tasked with rebuilding the group after its election defeat last year. Well, let's get more on this now with Monocle's Europe editor, Ed Stocker, who joins us from Milan. Good afternoon to you, Ed. Always good to chat with you. Um, Tell us a little bit, who is uh, Elie Schlein? And give us a sense of the job that she's got in her intray. Uh, yeah, she's got a big job in her in-tray, indeed. Hello, Tom. Um, she won with 54% of the vote. And the interesting thing here really is that it was a big surprise. Uh, Stefano Bonaccini uh, was seen as the natural heir. He was tipped to win. He is the governor from Emilia Romagna. Um, and so this was something uh, of an upset Um, What's interesting, I guess, is a couple of things. Firstly, is the Democratic Party has really uh, been seen to be in decline in in recent years. What it has lost is its sort of base, I guess, of working class voters. A lot of those voters have shifted to the right and the far right, which is part of the reason, of course, that Georgia Maloney won uh, in September of last year. She is, Eddie Schlein is is very different in the sense that the Democratic Party has sort of tended to elect 
what one might call uh, middle-aged white men. Uh, these last couple of occasions, she is 37, as you mentioned. So she's young by Italian political standards. And she comes from something of an activist background. Uh, she spent years outside uh, the Democratic Party and other left-wing, smaller uh, uh, parties. And she's very big on LGBT rights. She's in a same-sex um, relationship herself. Uh, she's very big on uh, immigration. Uh, she's very big on uh, the environment and green issues. And so in many ways, she's seen as a sort of anti Giorgia Maloney. Uh, and so it's kind of interesting to see the Democratic Party, I guess, shifting uh, to the left. And uh, it's thought, uh, it's expected, she will at the very least uh, provide a big dollop of enthusiasm, which a lot of people think had been missing from the party uh, over the last few years, Tom. Yeah, really interesting. And I think that contrast is is incredibly stark. Uh, I think it's the first time in, in the history of the country that two women have led the respective uh, main parties, which is interesting. And they're so different, as you say, Ed, in character. Just on that point, though, and this pivot to the left, because we've seen it here in the UK, for example, where Labour for extended periods of time has been so uh, consumed by its own internal uh, debates and discussions that it's lost track of the fact that it's supposed to be offering a coherent opposition. Um, things look a little bit better on that front now here. Is this a bit of an issue where you are, Ed? You know, it, she is more left wing. She was a surprise choice. But is there a danger that the progressive left or the centre left loses sight of the fact that the, the real key issue is to try and take Maloney on and offer a, a, a plausible alternative? Yeah, exactly. It's interesting. I immediately thought of that, actually, the sort of Jeremy Corbyn effect, the fact that, uh, you know, the people within the party, the, the rank and file members wanted Jeremy Corbyn, but he didn't work electorally and it, and it caused a load of divisions. It'll be interesting to see if we have the sort of same effect that she galvanizes uh, the grassroots of the party. But is she electable? Uh, that's the big question. Um, don't forget that, you know, Fratelli d'Italia, Brothers of Italy, is still the most important and popular party. It's not polling wildly, but you know, around 30 percent. But given how split Italian politics is, uh, it's doing well enough. Uh, Milani has kept the party steady. She hasn't been wild. Uh, she's been more moderate than a lot of people would think. So there's I think a lot of Italians are like broadly happy with her leadership. What will be interesting, I think, is that Ellie Schlein, as I mentioned before, has this sort of activist background. She's going to be a lot more confrontational, I would imagine, uh, with Maloney. She will challenge Maloney on a lot of these issues. It will come down to whether this is something the electorate wants. Don't forget, we had an election in September of last year, so we're a long way off another general election and unless the right-wing coalition falls. So it will be interesting to see what line she takes, whether she decides to become more moderate or she stays to the left of the party, because she has a large and plural democratic party that she will need to appease. So she will need to make some concessions if she's going to please everyone, even within her own party. The second point is that the democratic party is still the second largest party in Italy. The only reason that it didn't win the general election last year was that it was unable to form a coalition with any other party. 
because Italian politics is messy and people often fall out. It will be interesting to see, uh, this will be one of the most uh, key things really, is whether she is able to form a coalition with another party to make the Democratic Party stronger. Don't forget that the Five Star Movements and the PD had this huge falling out. Will we see a rapprochement within, within, you know, between those two political units? Uh, that will be fascinating watching over the coming weeks and months, Tom. Uh, and uh, just briefly and finally, I wonder, should we read anything into Schlein's former work? I think I'm right in saying she worked for the Obama administration back in 2008 and 2012. Would that hint that maybe there is a pragmatist as well as an active, that activist zeal? You know, she will have been schooled in how to, to be blunt, get into office and be, be an effective political operator. That could also bode well potentially for some of these challenges you're describing? Yeah, maybe. I mean, she's, yeah, uh, she, as you mentioned, I think at the top, she's an Italian uh, and, and American. Uh, you know, one, one parent is American. She grew up in Switzerland. So she has this sort of internationalist profile. And yes, she did uh, volunteer for the uh, Obama campaign. It was the first Obama campaign, I may add, 2008 to 2012. She worked on that. So uh, you could argue that that was during the, you know, the time when people, uh, believed most of all that change would come through the election of Barack Obama. But she'll have to be pragmatic. The point is that, you know, she um, has been a, a European member of parliament. She's been the, the, the deputy governor, if you will, of Emilia Romagna. Um, but this is obviously the biggest job she's had. And it will have the biggest number of different interests at play. And so politics, of course, is about pragmatism. And she's going to have to show that in this biggest job of hers to date, Tom. Ed, uh, terrific to speak with you. Thanks very much for your time. That was our Ed Stocker there. You're listening to The Briefing here on Monocle 24. The Concierge from Monocle, brought to you in association with Allianz Partners, is coming soon to Monocle 24 and all good audio platforms. Just like Monocle's editors... Allianz Partners is committed to helping you build exceptional experiences whenever you're traveling. That's what makes this a perfect partnership. The Concierge Programme brings all the best of Monocle's award-winning and beloved coverage of travel from print and digital to the airwaves. You'll hear insider insights and ideas about where the world is heading, plus tips on packing your bags for the must-see destinations new openings, and the loveliest spots to lay your head. So get out there and visit the places, enjoy the experiences, and meet the people changing the world of hospitality for the better. The Concierge, in association with Allianz Partners. You're back with The Briefing on Monocle 24. Over the weekend, Ukrainians and their supporters gathered in dozens of cities across the United States to mark the one-year anniversary of the Russian invasion. Monocle's Washington correspondent Chris Chermak attended a rally at the Lincoln Memorial and asked some of those in attendance what they felt about the level of US support for Ukraine heading into a second year of conflict. The crowd at a rally for Ukraine at the Lincoln Memorial this weekend was smaller than you might expect. A few thousand people gathered for speeches and somber musical performances like the one you're hearing. 
Or at least it was smaller than I would have expected for the one-year anniversary of Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine. I've been to rallies of tens of thousands, even hundreds of thousands of Americans for presidential inaugurations or protests along what's known as the Mall between the Lincoln Memorial and the U.S. Capitol building in Washington, D.C. But when you get right down to it, this is not America's war, at least not directly. There weren't any major marches on Washington when Hitler invaded Poland or France either. Along with the sea of blue and yellow for Ukraine, I spotted a few Polish flags in the crowd, some Baltic and Georgian flags, a few NATO and European flags as well, and of course, the US Stars and Stripes. But it has to be said that most people in attendance were either Ukrainians or Ukrainian-Americans. I'm here, I'm Ukrainian, so I understand, I know what Russia is, I know what the threat is to the world, and I'm so glad that America and NATO is, is helping Ukraine and Ukraine will win. The world will be safer. This is a threat not just to Ukraine, this is a threat to the world, this is a threat to American democracy. The passion of Ukrainian-Americans is understandable. But it also serves to underline the challenge for U.S. President Joe Biden as we enter year two of Russia's full-scale invasion. For U.S. support to continue, Ukrainians have to convince Americans that they have an ongoing stake in Ukraine's war as well. I was in Kiev um, in December, and I will tell you, every single person I talked to, they would tell me, please, please tell your friends, tell uh, American people that we really appreciate all the support. Without you, we would not be able to uh, withstand that Russian aggression. This is Marina Baidyuk, president of United Help Ukraine, a DC-based nonprofit that organized Saturday's rally and has raised some $45 million from Americans over the past year. She says her organization didn't really need to do any fundraising because Americans would come to them offering help. It's something she no doubt hopes will continue in year two of this invasion. So the second year will be crucial. We all believe that 2023 will be victorious. And for Ukraine to win, and to win quickly, the support needs to be um, really increased, not diminished. Those lining up to speak at the rally all made a similar case. They included Samantha Power, head of the U.S. government aid agency USAID, who told the gathering that Ukraine was in a fight for all of us. The European Union's ambassador to the United States and a number of other European diplomats and former ambassadors were in attendance as well. There was a lot of talk of Ukrainian bravery, of bringing Vladimir Putin to justice, of gratitude for the United States and others who have aided Ukraine. At one point, a rather hesitant chant broke out, calling for more. Arm Ukraine! Arm Ukraine! Arm Ukraine! We Those calls did come from American speakers too. William Taylor, a former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, called on the U.S. government to provide F-16 fighter jets. After the rally, he gave me his reasons. It's up to us. People are here today, people that are working in Congress, people in the administration. We have to make the case day after day after day. We have to tell people why it's important, exactly what we're talking about here today. We care about European security and our security. This matters for U.S. security. So Ukraine, again, has to win. Back when I traveled to Ukraine myself last year, 
you could see the effect it had on expats. Even before the invasion, you'd meet many an entrepreneur from abroad who seemed determined to stay no matter what. At the Ukraine rally in Washington, this was underlined by Morgan Williams, who heads the US-Ukraine Business Council, the largest private business trade association outside of Ukraine. Frankly, they're all very committed to Ukraine. They have mostly Ukrainians that work for them, and they have done everything possible to protect their employees. Williams says many American companies stayed in Ukraine even over the past year of full-scale war, especially those involved in agriculture. All of our grain companies are there, our farm machinery companies are there, uh, our seed companies are there, and you know you can't feed the world without Ukraine. Perhaps one reason for the smaller numbers at Saturday's rally is that at the end of the day this was not a protest, at least not against the United States. Washington has been doing most of what Ukraine wants. And Joe Biden, of course, just made a trip to Kyiv himself to underline his support for as long as it takes. And while voices that oppose aid to Ukraine here in the US are growing, those opponents, like Donald Trump or Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, remain outside agitators with little influence on foreign policy for now. But as we enter a second year of war, there is no doubt that Joe Biden will have to make a stronger case to the American people that it matters for their own security, and not just that of Ukraine. And just finally, what, what do you imagine we will be doing here one year from now? Celebrating the victory, uh, celebrating the Ukrainian victory over the Russians, and we'll be well into the reconstruction, and uh, Ukraine will rise. For Monocle, in Washington, I'm Chris Chermak. Yeah, big thanks to our Chris Chermak in DC for his reporting. You're with the briefing here on Monocle 24, 25 minutes past midday. And I'm joined here in Studio One by the one, the only, the inimitable, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Hello, Tom. A pleasure to be here. Um, now, Faye, you whet our collective appetites at the top uh, with some of these stories uh, from the Latam region. Well, a loose <laughs> interpretation of what that means. Um, but there's one story that's really been dominating, actually, the presses in that part of the world, and that's in Mexico. Uh, tell us about this one. Big protest in Mexico on the front page of La Jornada and many other papers in the country and the region. Uh, so basically, Tom, almost uh, half a million of people, according to the organizers, were out in the streets of Mexico City, and there's been protests in other major Mexican cities as well. People are going against an electoral reform which has been passed through Congress and the Senate as well. And the reason for that, Tom, I think it's very valid, the reason why they are in the streets. This new legislation is slashing the budget of the Independent National Electoral Institute. So they are the ones responsible to issue uh, national IDs to all Mexicans, uh, adult ones. So there's 95 million of them. Uh, and AMLO, uh, the Mexican president, Andres Manuel López Obrador, he says, you know, that they are biased and corrupt as well. So it's been quite a, a big slash in the institute. It's quite worrying, Tom, because Mexico does have a troubling recent history of kind of doubting the results of an election. I believe in 1988, suddenly the count of the votes stopped in between. They said, oh, there's a technical problem here. We might have to restart. So it's quite murky here. And uh, it's problematic as well that AMLO... 
like Trump and Bolsonaro, he kind of questions uh, mm. the country's institutions. So there is a worry in Mexico society. And, and I find it very interesting because he did win in 2018 with valid numbers by the Institute uh, and many other regional elections as well. It was the same with Bolsonaro in Brazil. So I, I, I don't know, there will be elections uh, next year. So people are worried. The opposition has valid concerns uh, about that as well. Uh, I've got some more concerns about AMLO, which we'll return to in a moment. Uh, but let's head back to the motherland. Uh, first of all, Faye, something in your homeland of Brazil has caught your eye. Yeah, and, and Tom, when I was in Brazil, I was in the newsstand. I found Aero magazine. I didn't know that before. So they actually look uh, at, uh, you know, uh, kind of uh, airport news and anything dealing with aviation in the region. So there's an interesting story here that Bogotá's international airport, El Dorado, surpassed Sao Paulo's Guarulhos. International Airport and is the second busiest airport in the region now, just behind Mexico City. That's quite remarkable. Uh, and I've been reading, you know, about the reasons for that as well. So a lot of new airlines are, you know, uh, operating uh, from El Dorado and Avianca, which is the main Colombian airline as well. Uh, they're also increasing their flights, uh, more daily flights to Europe and even to Aruba, actually. Aruba, that's kind of almost breaking news, if, if I may say. So if you're Colombian wanting to go to Aruba, so it's quite interesting, and I was personally surprised because I thought São Paulo was kind of a solid a second after Mexico City. But I mean, I think people in Guarulhos they should be worried now. I mean, what's happening there? Uh, so kind of good news for the for Colombian aviation, if I may say. Well, no, and these kind of uh, tallies are quite interesting. Actually, yeah. people take quite a lot of local pride. Yeah. Do you think São Paulo they'll be trying to busily schedule some more flights, build a couple more runways th- or something? I think so as well, and, and 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 it has all to do with the pandemic because now the capacity of the airport is 101 percent compared to 2019, which means it's better than what it used to be. And Guarulhos is only 80%. So clearly there's some issues going on. And mm-hmm. let's see the results for 2023 as well. Well, no, really interesting. And I'd be also intrigued to know how much of that is inbound tourism to Colombia, which we know is a massive potential growth uh, story for them. We'll come back to that one, Faye. We'll come back to Mexico. I mentioned yes. this already. AMLO. Now, maybe this is just, I don't know, is he trying to distract from the protests? What on earth? Has he been posting about? Well, first of all, I have to say I very much disagree with AMLO when it comes to electoral reform. But on this one, I might be with AMLO. Do you believe in woodland spirits by any chance? Can I shock you, Fernando? Obviously not. Interesting, we might have a disagreement here, but he shared actually on social media a picture of an alux, which is a mythological woodland spirit uh, that was part of Mayan culture. It was such a random post, he said. An engineer uh, sent me this picture three days ago, and then he said, everything is mystical. It's very unusual for a world leader to share such a picture. But yeah, actually, you do have props in your hand, Tom. I mean, for me, it looks very real. I mean, it is... And it looks. I mean, it's can kind of. Can you describe? Obviously, we're the medium of radio, Faye. Can you capture this for our audience a I, little bit? I don't want to be offensive. Sorry for all the Mexicans out there. I mean, I do actually believe in woodland spirits, but it's you know, have you seen the Blair Witch Project? It's kind of is a very dark woods, and then you can see a shadow, someone with kind of white hair and very kind of shiny eyes, and it's kind of hidden uh, a little bit in this tree. So, uh, and they are very mischievous. They're not bad people. Those uh, woodland spirits, according I was I was. Doing some reading about them. They just kind of, you know, if you're walking in the forest, they might kind of chase you a little bit and they decide to appear to you. They don't appear to everyone, by the way. But AMLO, I mean, he, I mean, he's not maybe respecting the spirit, sharing this picture with everyone. So they appear when they want to, if yes. they're in a playful mood. And if you build a small house for them, 
they'll look after your land for seven years and help your corn grow. Sounds like a good deal to me. <laughs> Will that work on a on a sort of a Soho planter? Get an alux in there. I would love that. I would love that. I welcome all the aluxes in the aluxes world. Or leprechauns are all welcome. Apply within. Uh, Fernando, I've lost my thread. What have we got? You got one more. One more. Uh, is it true? Are you trying to shoehorn another reference to this ridiculous film, Cocaine Bear? Yes. Into the program again. It's in the news. I mean, Cocaine Bear did very well at the box office in the US. As I was predicting, I have to say, $23 million in the first weekend. It's, I mean, it only costed $30 million to make. So I think, you know, the producers of the film, they're very smart. There, there was a need for a cocaine bear in the cinema. And I'll tell you why, Tom. <laughs> we need more fun in the cinemas. Because even okay. the superhero films, they're becoming quite po-faced and serious. And I think th- there's a lack of films like this. I was even chatting with the screenwriter, Jimmy Warden. By the way, tune in to the Monaco Daily if you want to listen to the interview. And actually, I chose a clip, uh, you know, a very pressing question that I've asked Jimmy. Let's have a listen. I presume you've never seen a bear under the effect of cocaine, did you? No, but if, <laughs> if anybody has, they should reach out. A very hard-hitting there you interview. Go. So is that him essentially making up? <laughs> yeah, I've seen this. That's this is just a concoction, this story. It's a concoction. It's based on a real-life story, but I think the bear have a happy ending in the film. Okay. <laughs> I think we should wrap this up immediately. Yes. Uh, Fernando, an excellent roundup. That's a pretty spurious Latam story. Uh, and there <laughs> we shall leave it. Uh, that's our, of course, Fernando Augusto. Pacheco joining us on The Briefing. That's all for today's programme, which was expertly produced by Carlotta Rebello. Our researchers were Andre Nikolai Pimentium and Sophie Monaghan-Coombs. And our studio manager was Adam Heaton. My thanks to them, one and all. We'll be back at the same time tomorrow. You know by now, but I'll remind you, noon London time. I'm Tom Edwards. That is your Monday briefing. Goodbye and thank you very much for tuning in.